0: It was November 24th, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving, and Tina Mucklow and her Twin Cities-based flight crew, three flight attendants and three pilots, were beginning what should have been four or five days of flying, working through the holiday. Mucklow was the newest hire and lowest-ranked flight attendant. She was unaware of the man sitting in a seat near the rear of the airplane and his intentions that day. But she was soon to find out. Welcome to Higher Theories. On today's episode, the story of D.B. Cooper. You can find previous episodes of Higher Theories on Instagram, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, Apple and Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to your favorite podcast. On the afternoon of November 24, 1971, a nondescript man, calling himself Dan Cooper, approached the counter of Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland, Oregon. He used cash to buy a one-way ticket on Flight 305 bound for Seattle, Washington. Thus began one of the great unsolved mysteries in FBI history. Cooper was a quiet man who appeared to be in his mid-40s, wearing a business suit with a black tie and white shirt. He ordered a drink, bourbon and soda. He would chain-smoke cigarettes while the flight was waiting to take off. A short time after 3pm, as flight attendant Florence Schaffner was handing out drinks, Working from the back of the cabin towards the front, Cooper, sitting in seat 18C, handed her a note. Florence thought it was the usual gesture of giving a lady your phone number, so she pocketed the note intending to read it later. At that point, Cooper said, Ma'am, I think you should read that note. I have a bomb the note, written in a felt-tip pen, and all in capitals, read, Miss, I have a bomb, and I want you to sit beside me. Jaffner did not believe Cooper at first, and asked to see the bomb, in which Cooper then proceeded to open the briefcase and show her the contents. Eight red cylinders. Four on the bottom, four on top, surrounded by a jungle of wires, all connected to a cylindrical battery. Cooper quickly shut the case. Tina Mucklau was now aware because Florence Schaffner was staring at her. Tina came over and Florence informed her of what was going on and was told not to alert any passengers. Tina then went and was able to tell the pilot of what was going on via Cooper's demand. Cooper informed Tina of his demands, and Tina then transferred those to the pilot, pilot William A. Scott. $200,000 in negotiable American currency, four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. There was a request that followed the parachutes, though. He requested to have civilian parachutes, not military parachutes. He wanted this because military parachutes have a timed release on the chute, meaning he would not be able to control his descent down. Civilian chutes require you to pull the chute yourself. Schaffner conveyed Cooper's instructions to the pilots in the cockpit and told them it's not a joke. When she returned, Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses, adding to his famous police sketch. Pilot William A. Scott quickly contacted Seattle-Tacoma Air Traffic, who then proceeded to alert local and federal authorities. Passengers were obviously going to need to be notified, but the pilot figured to not cause alarm and announced that the plane needed to burn some fuel before landing so they would need to circle the airport. This, in reality, was to give time for the authorities to gather his demands. Authorities needed approval from the airline's president before releasing any said demands. Northwest Orient's President Donald Nairope authorized payment of the ransom and instructed all of his employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers. The aircraft then proceeded to circle the airport for two more hours, giving the needed time to the FBI. The parachutes and money were ready and emergency personnel were dispatched. Flight Attendant Tina Mucklau recalled that Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain. At one point, he remarked, Looks like Tacoma down there, as the aircraft flew above it. He also mentioned correctly that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from the Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Schaffner described him as calm, polite, and well-spoken, not at all consistent with the stereotypes of enraged, hardened criminals or the take-me-to-Cuba political descendants popularly associated with air piracy at the time. He wasn't nervous, McLeod told investigators. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. He ordered a second bourbon and soda and even paid his drink tab. He also attempted to give Mucklau the change and offered to request meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle. The ransom money consisted of 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most with the serial numbers beginning with the letter L, indicating issuance by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and most from the 1963A or 1969 series. Around 8.24, Cooper was informed that his demands had been met, and at 8.39, the pilot landed the aircraft at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Cooper instructed the pilot to taxi the airplane to an area without shadows, and instructed the flight crew to draw the curtains and shades throughout the entire aircraft as to deter military snipers from seeing him. Northwest Orient Seattle operationals manager Al Lee approached the aircraft in street clothes to avoid the possibility that Cooper might mistake his airline uniform for that of a police officer and delivered the cash-filled knapsack and parachutes to Maklao via the aircraft stairs. Once the delivery was completed, Cooper allowed all passengers, Schaffner and senior flight attendant Alice Hancock, to leave the plane. During refueling, Cooper outlined his flight plan to the cockpit crew. A southeast course toward Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft. Approximately 100 knots. At a maximum 10,000 feet, he further specified that the landing gear remain deployed in the takeoff/landing position, the wing flaps be lowered 15 degrees, and the cabin remain unpressurized. First Officer William J. Ratsack informed Cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to approximately 1,000 miles under the specified flight configuration, which meant that a second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. Cooper and the crew discussed options and agreed on Reno, Nevada as the refueling stop. Cooper further directed that the aircraft take off with the rear exit door open and its staircase extended. Northwest's home office objected, on the grounds that it was unsafe to take off with the aircraft staircase deployed. Cooper countered that it was indeed safe, but he would not argue the point. He would lower it once they were airborne. After the refueling and transfer of Cooper's demands, the aircraft taxied down the runway and took off at 7.40, with only Cooper, Captain Scott, Flight Attendant Mucklow, First Officer Radzak, and Flight Engineer Harold E. Anderson. Cooper was unaware that two F-106 fighter aircraft from McCord Air Base followed behind the airliner, one above it and one below. Out of Cooper's view, a Lockheed T-33 trainer, diverted from an unrelated Air National Guard mission, also shadowed the 726 before running low on fuel and turning back near the Oregon-California state line. After takeoff, Cooper told Mucklau to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the door closed. As she complied, Mucklau observed Cooper tying something, possibly the money bag around his waist. At approximately 8 o'clock p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the aircraft stairs had been activated. Radzak offered assistance via the aircraft intercom, which Cooper refused. This was the last communication the crew had with D.B. Cooper. The crew soon noticed a subjective change of air pressure, indicating that the aircraft door was open. At approximately 8.13, The aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, large enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to level flight. It was at this point that it was believed that Cooper jumped out of the airplane through the back staircase. At approximately 10.15, Scott and Radzak landed the 727 with the aircraft stairs still deployed at a Reno airport. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriffs, deputies, and Reno police surrounded the jet, as it had not yet been determined with certainty that Cooper was no longer aboard. FBI stormed the airplane in an armed search, but quickly confirmed his absence local police and FBI agents immediately began questioning possible suspects. One of the first was an Oregon man with a minor police record named D.B. Cooper, contacted by Portland police on the off chance that the hijacker had used his real name or the same alias in a previous crime. He was quickly ruled out as a suspect, but a local reporter named James Long, rushing to meet a media deadline, confused the eliminated suspect's name with a pseudonym used by the hijacker. A wire service reporter, Clyde Jabin of UPI by most accounts, Joe Frazier of the AP by others, republished the error followed by numerous other media sources. Due to this, D.B. Cooper became the most widely remembered pseudonym. A precise search area was difficult to define, as even small differences in estimates of the aircraft's speed or the environmental conditions along the flight path changed Cooper's projected landing point considerably. An important variable was the length of time he remained in freefall before pulling his ripcord, if he indeed succeeded in opening a parachute at all. Neither of the Air Force fighter pilots saw anything exit the airliner, either visually or on radar. Nor did they see a parachute open. But at night, with extremely limited visibility and cloud cover obscuring any ground lighting below, an airborne, black-clad human figure could easily have gone undetected. The T-33 pilots never made visual contact with the 727. Initial explanations placed Cooper's Landing Zone with an area on the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens, a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin, an artificial lake formed by a dam on the Lewis River. Search efforts focused on Clark and Cowlitz countries, encompassing the terrain immediately south and north respectively of the lewis river in southwest washington fbi agents and sheriff deputies from those counties searched large areas of the mountainous wilderness on foot and by helicopter door-to-door searches of local farmhouses were also carried out other search parties ran patrol boats along lake merwin and yale lake the reservoir immediately to its east, but there were no traces of Cooper, nor any of the equipment presumed to have left the aircraft with him. Shortly after the spring thaw in early 1972, teams of FBI agents aided by some 200 Army soldiers from Fort Luis, along with Air Force personnel, national guardsmen, and civilian volunteers conducted another thorough ground search of Clark and Cowlitz countries for 18 days in March, and then an additional 18 days in April. Electronic Explorations Company, a marine salvage firm, used a submarine to search the 200-foot depths of Lake Merwin. Two local women stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure in Clark County. It was later identified as the remains of Barbara Ann Derry, a teenaged girl who had been abducted and murdered several weeks before. Ultimately, the search and recovery operation, arguably the most extensive and intensive in U.S. history uncovered no significant material evidence related to the hijacking. In early 1973, with the ransom money still missing, the Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper or any FBI field office. In Seattle, the Post-Intelligencer made a similar offer with a $5,000 reward. The offers remained in effect until Thanksgiving 1974, and though there were several near matches, no genuine bills were found. In 1975, Northwest Orient's insurer, Global Indemnity Co., complied with an order from the Minnesota Supreme Court and paid the airliner's $180,000 claim on the ransom money. On July 8, 2016, the FBI announced that it was suspending active investigation of the Cooper case, citing a need to focus its investigation, resources, and manpower on issues of higher and more urgent priority. Local field offices will continue to accept any legitimate physical evidence related specifically to the parachutes or to the ransom money that may emerge in the future. The 60-volume case file compiled over the 45-year course of the investigation will be preserved for historical purposes at FBI headquarters in Washington DC and on the FBI website. All is available and open to the public. The only evidence that the FBI have that Cooper even existed was a black clip on tie, a mother of pearl tie clip and eight filter-tipped Rayleigh cigarette butts. At some time after the hijacking, the cigarette butts, though, were lost. Between 1971 and 2016, the FBI has processed over a thousand serious suspects, including assorted publicity seekers and deathbed confessors. Due to multiple copycat hijackings in 1972, the FAA required that all Boeing 727 aircraft be fitted with a device later dubbed the Cooper Vane that prevents lowering of the aircraft stairs during flight. As a direct result of the hijacking, the installation of peepholes was mandated in all cockpit doors. This enables the cockpit crew to observe passengers without opening the cockpit door. So that is the story of D.B. Cooper. And now I guess it's time for personal theories. I want to give you my personal theory on the D.B. Cooper story. And in my opinion, D.B. Cooper did not exist. So it all starts with the Captain William A. Scott. One day, William devises a plan in which he shares with First Officer William J. Radzak. William wants to get out of the pilot business and retire already. Still being young, he knows this is not an option. So he crafts a plan to fake a hijacking. They inform the rest of the crew on the plane, agreeing to split anything if they get out of the ordeal. They take weeks to craft this plan perfectly, because they know they will all be questioned by FBI if there was a hijacking on their aircraft. The day of the flight has come. They decide to do it in November as a lot of people would be flying home for Christmas coming up, and they wanted to use the traffic at the airport as cover. All flight crew have boarded the airplane and they taxi and get ready for takeoff. The flight is going as planned, or as how air traffic has planned it, when Florence gives Tina the okay. Tina then goes to the cabin of the aircraft and informs the pilot that everyone is ready for the plan. Captain William A. Scott then radios to air traffic informing them of the supposed hijacking. Now, keep in mind, no one other than the pilot was in contact with air traffic or the FBI during the entire hijacking. So when the FBI asked to speak to Cooper directly, the captain informed them that Cooper stated he did not want to talk to anyone. So already the FBI are going off the word of pilot William A. Scott. So after William explains the demands they have, or the so-called Cooper has, the FBI get to work. It was at this point where they informed the passengers about the mechanical issue, and they would have to circle the airport for a while to burn off fuel. Because there was no hijacking, no commotion, the passengers believed the flight crew. When the aircraft landed in Seattle to retrieve the demands William A. Scott as informed are coming from Cooper. The crew then shut all the curtains and blinds on the aircraft so no one could see that Cooper was not there because Cooper did not exist. After the demands were handed to First Officer William J. Radzak, the crew then let all the passengers off the flight and got ready for takeoff. Now, when the passengers got off, They still were unaware of any issues. It wasn't until they seen the SWAT and FBI that they became curious. After takeoff, the plan was to have the supposed hijacker jump out of the rear of the airplane, never to be seen again. This was done simply by throwing one of the parachutes out of the staircase. The two fighter jets claimed they did not see anyone jump out of the aircraft, and that's possibly due to the parachute's pack being smaller than a human jumping out. So now the crew hides the ransom money in their luggage, clothing, and shoes. The FBI storm the airplane and find no DB Cooper. Very little evidence, and to this day, no DB Cooper was found. The crew was able to then split the ransom money between the crew that was aware of the heist. The FBI has never gone past general interviews with the crew, and since they took weeks to craft their plan, everyone's description of Cooper and the events all lined up. So that's my theory on the D.B. Cooper case. I believe DB never existed, and that the crew pulled off maybe one of the most elaborate schemes in aviation history. You can find previous episodes of Higher Theories on Instagram, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple and Google Podcast, and anywhere else you listen to your favorite podcast. If you want to help out, a review or sharing the show with your friends helps the most. Thank you and stay strange.